The last time that I gave a talk, when I turned around and bowed to the Buddha, I had the thought, oh, I'd really like to give a talk about the Buddha. <laughs> and so I will. <laughs> Tonight, I'd like to talk about him as a, a human being, as a mystic, as a, a symbol, as a legendary figure, and also as a historical figure, a teacher and a leader founder of a tradition. The word Buddha means one who has completely awakened from ignorance, one who has opened to their vast potential for wisdom and for understanding. It means one who's brought a complete end to suffering and to frustration. It's said that even without the Buddha, the Dhamma or the Dharma is, the truth is. Even without the Buddha, there is the truth. There is the nature of things, the laws of nature. The Buddha didn't create the truth, but he uncovers it, he reveals it. And in fact, in the literal translation from the Pali, there isn't even a sense of um, his teaching or explicating the truth but more this sense of proclaiming or pointing to the truth. So it isn't as though there were a thing that passed from him to others, but more that his description of the nature of life was such that people could look more clearly within themselves to see if it were actually so. So the Buddha doesn't create the Dharma, the Buddha describes it or reveals it. And our own task in meditation, our own goal in meditation, thankfully enough, is in a similar vein. We don't have to create the truth. We don't have to manufacture anything. We don't have to fabricate or create or design or maintain anything. All we need to do is to see as clearly as we possibly can. As the Buddha uncovered the Dharma and the truth, he proclaimed this seeing, this clear seeing, both in his words and in his life. He once said about himself, using the word Tathagata, which means thus gone, and that is often the way he was referred to as the Tathagata. He said, as the Tathagata speaks, so he does. As he does, so he speaks. That is precisely why he is called the Tathagata, the enlightened one. And that's something I had a feeling about really from the very beginning of my practice. Maybe it was because I started to meditate in Bodhgaya, which is the village that has grown up around the tree under which the Buddha was uh, sitting when he became enlightened. It always felt as if he were somehow nearby, that he, were, uh, he was like a, an accessible figure, not something very remote and removed. You know, one could walk through that village and come to the tree and see the very spot where supposedly he was sitting when he became enlightened or see the spot in another town where he died. And, and it felt as though he were actually a presence there. So from the beginning, I had this sense of 
strong connection to him. And I was very moved by that sense of as he speaks, so he does. And as he does, so he speaks. The Buddha has always symbolized for me a completely integrated human being. So that, you know how for many of us, if not most of us, we can experience our lives as somewhat fragmented or compartmentalized. They're broken up into little pieces so that we might feel full of loving kindness and compassion and, and great strength when we're all alone. But as soon as we're with people, we crumble inside. Or we're fine when we're with people and we're expressive and caring and connected, but we can't bear to be alone. Or we're one way at work and another way with our families. And our lives can be very divided and split apart in that way. So I saw the Buddha as a being who had integrated his wisdom, his understanding, his vision of life completely so that it seemed it was seamless for him. There was no starting and stopping of expressing the truth. There were no parts or no division, no fragmentation. His life seemed to be of one piece, whether he was alone or he was teaching, whether he was wandering through India or he was being still. The root of his being seemed to be the expression of wisdom and compassion. And that was the thread that was existent through all of those different activities. And I found that tremendously inspiring. So the, the living tradition that is offered to us as a kind of heritage is his example of a life of harmlessness and compassion and the great strength of that plus the body of the teachings. Also from the Buddha who said, from time to time the enlightened one is born into the world an arhant, or fully awakened being, abounding in wisdom and goodness, happy, with knowledge of the worlds unsurpassed as a guide to those willing to be taught, a blessed one, a Buddha. By himself he thoroughly understands. He makes this knowledge known to others. He proclaims the truth, both in the letter and in the spirit, lovely in the beginning, lovely in the middle, lovely in the end abounding in wisdom and goodness, happy. It's a pretty great possibility. The Buddha, or you might say our Buddha, arose in this world in India around 563 BC. He came to birth as a human being, just as we all have. His very compelling questions about the nature of life were also very human questions. It really is as though he were asking, what does it mean? Now, what does it mean to be so out of control of so many things, to live in this ephemeral world like a rainbow, like a dream, and to be free, to be happy, not just to make do, you know, or somehow muddle through, or have a decent enough life, 
But what does it mean to really be free? To be happy, to be abounding in wisdom and goodness, given the nature of things, the nature of things being how much everything is changing. It's like the Buddha asked, in effect, what's it like to be born into this human body, to be so vulnerable and helpless, and then to grow up and to grow older, to be subject to sickness, to disease, ultimately to die, whether we like it or not. And given that this is the more hidden, perhaps, or unacknowledged nature of the body, how do we find happiness anyway? That doesn't push away or deny this vulnerability and this transient nature, but includes it as the basis of understanding. How do we find happiness anyway? What does it mean to have this human mind, which seems to veer constantly from one state to another, so that we might wake up in the morning just delighted to be alive and full of faith, really happy. And then just before lunch, we're ready to pack up and leave. And we're full of doubt and we're afraid and we're miserable. And, you know, maybe we sneak into the phone booth and we make a reservation to get out. And our hand is like on the phone and our minds change again. And, we think, oh, how nice to be here, you know? So simple. And, you know, we go from happiness to sorrow, to doubt, to faith, to fear, and constantly this cascade of emotions, of, of different perceptions of life in a way that doesn't seem to be within our realm of personal control. There doesn't seem to be a way to successfully say, enough. <laughs> I've thought enough. I've slept enough. I've doubted enough. I've grieved enough. I'm not going to feel this anymore. Because all of these different experiences seem to arise as the conditions for them come into place. There doesn't seem to be a uh, kind of puppet master inside, you know, that's saying, well, you know, I'll take three of those and five of those, and, uh, you know, Tuesday at, at eight I will have a breakthrough. Um, it's not like that. And yet, what does it mean to be a human being who nonetheless wants to be happy, who has this deep urge to feel at home in life rather than alienated, to not feel, this deep urge to not feel victimized by this constant barrage of changing states. Where do we find peace or joy or happiness that isn't confined within the body, trying to keep it from ever changing, that isn't confined within a feeling state or an emotional state, trying to keep it from ever changing? Is there a happiness and is there a peace that is not a compounded thing subject to change, subject to the ungovernability of life, subject to destruction as conditions change? And in a way, that can be the kind of question that any of us might ask as a human being. 
You know, how do I live a life that isn't just mechanical, that means nothing? How do I actually live in a way that allows me to access a happiness that can coexist with truth, that isn't a, a mere pleasant veneer that we try to lay over a difficult or uncomfortable truth, that is completely open to the truth of things and the changing nature of things and so on, and yet is free. As the Buddha phrased the call to awakening for himself, he said it this way. He said, Why should I, who am subject to birth, old age, sickness, sickness, death, sorrow, and suffering, seeing the danger in these things, why should I take refuge in that which is also subject to change, to death, to sorrow, to suffering? Let me find that which is changeless, which is deathless, which is without sorrow, which is unborn and undying. That is a true refuge. And in fact, that is what he proclaimed he had found. He found his own true refuge. And this is meaningful not just because he did it, but because he exemplified or symbolized that same potential that we all share. We have what in um, the Buddhist teaching is known as a precious human birth, which many of you have heard uh, talks about. And that is this exquisitely delicate combination of conditions that come together first within the Buddhist cosmology to have a human birth and then to have a human birth where you look for deeper truths. The human realm within the Buddhist cosmology is considered to be the best realm for the pursuit of the Dharma because there's just the right mixture of pleasure and pain very often. If there's too much pain, then one, one's whole uh, existence is just about survival. And if there's too much pleasure, then it's sort of like, well, who cares, you know? <laughs> um, just enjoy yourself a little while longer. But just to hit that balance where there's enough energy and upliftment and spaciousness of mind and enough recognition of pain or sorrow so that we want to wake up. We don't just want to live in that kind of make-believe world. And that's a precious human birth. And it's very rare to have all of the qualities and conditions and circumstances that need to come together for a person to really undertake a spiritual practice. It's one thing to read about it and talk about it and admire it from afar, like, oh, isn't that interesting? You know, a Buddha sat under a tree 2,500 years ago. That's wonderful. Um, you know, but to understand that this is our own potential, that each one of us can live in a way with, in a way more actualizing and... Um, appreciating 
this potential. We can bring it to life in ourselves. It's very rare to be willing to do things a little differently, to be willing to take a risk, to not simply be conventional or ordinary, to actually be willing to open to greater levels of understanding of ourselves and of the world. It's very rare and it's very precious. And the Buddha is the the symbol of someone who had that kind of intense commitment and who brought it to life in a way that is still shining for us all of these years later. So we say that as a human being, he sat under a tree about 2,500 years ago. He was motivated by compassion. He was brought there to the base of that tree on a wave of moral force. There was an energy that landed him there, just like there's an energy for each one of us that has landed us here. At dusk, the Buddha then known as the Bodhisattva, or the person aspiring to Buddhahood, was attacked by Mara, who's the legendary figure symbolizing Sometimes he's called the killer of virtue or the killer of life. Mara is considered to be um, this figure who was attempting to keep the bodhisattva under his personal domain or control. He didn't want him to be seeking enlightenment. And as you know, and maybe even saw in uh, Technicolor in the movies, um, Mara attacked in the evening with all kinds of allures and temptations and, um, you know, with hailstorms and um, rainstorms and mudstorms and beautiful women and all kinds of things attempting to have the Bodhisattva give up his resolve and just get up from under the tree. And the Bodhisattva always just sat there very calmly. Neither seeking nor rejecting in a way, but simply being with his own experience. And Mara continued to tempt him. And finally, the very last challenge of Mara was that of doubt, in effect, that of self-doubt. He more or less asked the Bodhisattva, well, who do you think you are, thinking you can get enlightened? You know, why are you even sitting there? You shouldn't be sitting there. You don't deserve to be sitting there, which is something of a familiar voice for people. And in response, the Bodhisattva did lean over his hand over his knee, touched the earth, the earth bore witness. And that was uh, the vanquishing of Mara. Mara just retreated. And I think of that often as well, how we can be so afflicted with self-doubt, thinking, I don't deserve to be happy. And you can hear it sometimes in the tone of voice in which uh, those of you who do metta or loving-kindness practice, you can almost hear yourself saying, may I be happy? No. (laughs) No way. Or we do those reflections, you know, think of the universal wish of beings to be happy and honor and respect and cherish your own wish to be happy. 
Can you do that? Can you appreciate the rightfulness, the perfection even, of that urge toward happiness? That that is a beautiful thing within us. That our problem is not wanting to be happy. Our problem is that we don't know how. And so often that urge toward happiness is combined with ignorance. Sometimes with a devastating ignorance. And so we continue to do the things that create suffering. But the very urge toward happiness is a beautiful thing within us. And we need to appreciate it. That each of us has come here in a way swept up in some wave or by some wave of a moral force that we have arrived here and that we will also be challenged by Mara in all of those different ways through fear and lust and so on and most insidiously by self-doubt. Like, Who do you think you are to think you can see more clearly or be happy? or be peaceful, or have a loving heart. And we have to be able to sit there and neither succumbing nor rejecting, be with our own experience, allow those temptations to pass on through, to know that, yes, this is where I belong, in fact. So the Bodhisattva kept on sitting there through the night. It was the full moon night in May. And it said that what he did was he saw the conditioned nature of suffering and sorrow and grief and loss and death, and he traced it back. He kept tracing it back until he came to ignorance as the root cause. And he saw his own and others' countless past lives stretching back over many ages and eons of the world. In a way, he saw the spectacle of the whole universe, of beings being born and dying, and all in accordance with the laws of nature. He saw the cyclic path of all beings, those who were very fortunate and exalted, and those who were very unfortunate and poor and all beings just tossed about on these waves of birth and old age and sickness and death. And as the night went on, he saw the means of liberation. So what he saw and expounded was suffering and the cause of suffering and the end of suffering and the path to the end of suffering. So that at the first light of dawn, just as the star Venus broke in the morning sky, He saw through the very last traces of ignorance in himself and he was completely enlightened. This is something I've also always liked about the Buddhist teaching. There isn't this sense of there being an ego or self within that needs to be annihilated. That somehow, you know, when you hear about different spiritual approaches and the the message is, well, you have to kill the ego or destroy the ego or give up the ego, something um, sometimes more or less violent. Um, And often when I hear these things, I get a sense of, ooh, you know, like almost like there's this little self inside that's been good to me all my life and has been showing me a good time and now I'm going to kill it. 
you know, in my spiritual pursuit. And um, what the Buddha posited, on the other hand, which is really very different, was that there never has been a self to begin with in that sense of a uh, solid, separate entity that's pulling the strings and in control of things. That this this, uh, little being inside has never existed to begin with. And it's like an illusion. It's like a, um, a contingent reality where we have forgotten the component parts and we've made a mistake. We've made a very big mistake. But it's just a mistake. It's not a thing that we are out to get and crush and annihilate and destroy. And so the only um, enemy, so to speak, is ignorance. Our efforts are toward the dissolution and the relinquishment of ignorance not of something within that we're not really quite sure we can do without. You know, those very uh, common questions, and we laugh sometimes because they're the most common questions in, um, you know, all these years of teaching. And, um, you know, they all begin with, if there's no self, then. You know, if there's no self, then who's doing this course? Or... You know, if there's no self, then who's going to be able to leave this room? Um, And in fact, if there's no self, whoever got into this room is going to be able to leave this room because there's never been one, according to these teachings. It's all been okay so far. Um, You know, but we always ask these questions because we get that idea like, oh, there's something and I'm going to lose it. How am I going to function without it? You know, how are things going to have any kind of direction or... You know, it's just sort of protoplasm or something left in the middle of this room. And, um, <laughs> but it's not so, because if you manage to get in here without a self, you'll manage to get out, here, out of here without a self. You know, and it was such a, a tremendous relief for me when I got that about the Buddhist teaching, is that it's not about killing the ego and crushing the ego. It's about waking up from a dream. It's about seeing more clearly if he was right, and this self and the sense of that separate entity has never existed to begin with, then imagining it exists could not possibly do us any good. Whereas the truth of things will never harm us, no matter what the truth is saying, it will never harm us. And so we work to see through our ignorance not to lose something and not to harm ourselves. Thich Nhat Hanh described that moment of enlightenment in this way. He said, because of ignorance the Buddha's mind had been obscured just like the moon and stars hidden by the storm clouds Clouded by endless waves of deluded thoughts, the mind had falsely divided reality into subject and object, self and other, existence and non-existence, birth and death, and from these arose wrong views, the prisons of feeling, craving, grasping, and becoming, 
The suffering of birth, old age, disease, and death only made the prison walls thicker. The only thing to do was to seize the jailkeeper and see his true face. The jailkeeper was ignorance. Once the jailkeeper was gone, the jail would disappear and never be built again. So that is the essential confrontation for the Buddha and for ourselves. It's simply with not seeing clearly. It's not understanding, not knowing what is true. And it is amazing that the light of that moment of his seeing clearly, of his enlightenment, all those centuries ago, is still shining now. The accomplishment of the Buddha, the nature of the freedom that he awoke to is what is available to us. We can see it from different angles. It's like looking at a jewel from different sides and seeing different facets of the jewel. One aspect of it is what is known traditionally as the great renunciation, which isn't exactly an an external renunciation, but it's a move toward greater and greater simplicity. What it is fundamentally is a renunciation of grasping and aversion and delusion. Renunciation doesn't mean taking something and throwing it away in a fit of temper or um, being afraid of something and therefore desperately trying to push it away. It doesn't mean being desperate or panicked or trying to annihilate something. It means relinquishment. It means allowing the natural ability to let go come forth so that we're moving back to a place of more and more centeredness and natural peace. Sometimes you can experience it in the practice in the simplest ways. It's like feeling one breath and getting ready for the next instead of just feeling one breath. So all of that movement of trying to get a handle on what's coming next before it even happens of trying to be on top of things. All of that, in a way, sets us off balance so that for much of our day, we are, in effect, leaning forward. The movement of renunciation is just to settle back. So it's not that we then lose something or we're deprived of something or we're set off balance by that act of relinquishment, we're brought back into balance. Because generally speaking, we're leaning forward. It's like you can imagine or maybe actually feel the pain or the hurt that would exist in the body if you're just leaning forward all the time. So that is a reflection of what's happening in our minds from leaning forward all the time. The act of renunciation is one of great delight. It's like, whoa, back. Just settle in to what we discover is a much more natural kind of peace. So renunciation is primarily that one thing. It's the settling back. It's the letting go. We 
when we do that, we actually discover our lives. So much of that leaning forward is the cause of this construction of the sense of self and other, of feeling so apart and feeling so separate. We lean forward in an effort to govern, to control, to manipulate. And when we lean back, it's like we're just relinquishing that. And what we discover, strangely enough, is more of a sense of oneness than when we were leaning into something, trying to hold on, trying to make it behave in a certain way. The Buddha once said, I think quite beautifully, those who are heedless, those who are heedful or mindful are on the path to the deathless. Those who are heedless or mindless are as if dead already. Because without mindfulness, there's no spark. There's actually no, no fullness of experience. There's no, um, the word in Pali translates as radiance. Uh, there's no energy, there's no light or luminosity. And that doesn't mean bliss, um, that our experience is all blissful when we're mindful, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> but it means there's that sense of uh, vibrancy or real wakefulness. Those who are mindless are as if dead already. And isn't it so, really? You know, that we just walk around, we're completely disconnected and we're unaware. And then, you know, you lie down in bed at night and you think, what did I do today? <laughs> you know, where'd my life go? It's just like that, really. So the renunciation is relinquishing, letting go, relaxing. Letting go of what we don't, in effect, need. Letting go of that fruitless effort to control. And when we do that, we discover this space of more uh, gentleness and balance and natural peace. And what arises is that facet of enlightenment or understanding, which is known as realization. The act of what is called the great renunciation becomes the great realization. We don't let go and then decide, well, now I'll try to see things more clearly. Once we do let go of our habits of clinging and grasping and, and trying to manipulate, we do see things more clearly. There's a line from a poem by Yeats in which he says, who can know the dancer from the dance? And that is the realization that actually arises. We let go of the habits and the obscurations of mind and the things that confuse us and the things that lead us further away from the truth. And what do we see? We see who can know the dancer from the dance, which is not an intellectual understanding. It's a great intuitive wordless knowing. It's an intuitive opening to how things are. It's like everybody in this room undoubtedly has known for a very long time intellectually 
that everything is changing, that every cell in our body is changing. But on what level do we know that? Do we know that on the level where we're sure it's true but it doesn't matter? Do we know it on the level that transforms our vision of our lives and our deaths? What we can claim as being under our control? What we need to accept as the nature of things? On what level do we know it all? The realization is of the nature of existence that there is perhaps not this self, this ego taking care of us that our experience perhaps does not refer back to an isolated core something substantial which in the end is going to protect us that there is more this sense of conditions coming together and coming apart. It's like when we had the storm the other day, one could say, where did it go when it left? But it isn't quite exactly that the storm picked itself up and went somewhere else. It's more true to say that It wasn't a thing of substance, of ultimate solidity, that different conditions came together in a certain way. There was that result, that effect. The conditions changed. The effect changed. So where was the existence of that storm, or of this body, or of this mind? We see that everything is very fragile, it's very tentative, and it's very intertwined, interdependent. We see that there doesn't seem to be anything in life that actually stands alone, that is not interdependent, that that's the very nature of life. That's precisely why we say in meditation, there's no need at all to strain for something to disappear, to try to make anything go away. Because it's all going away anyway. It's simply constructed out of conditions. And that's what we need to see. When we see that, then the third aspect of enlightenment arises, which is known as the great brave mind, or the mind of boundless compassion. For a a being such as the Buddha, compassion is both the motivation and the expression of their freedom. When he described himself, he said that he was born for the good of the many, for the welfare of the many, out of compassion. And for us as well, it's both the motivation and the clear expression of our practice. It's very tempting to undertake a spiritual path with kind of the same sort of clinging motivations that we might undertake anything else in the world from. You know, perhaps we feel somewhat bereft inside or impure. We feel we're not good enough. And so we undertake a spiritual practice 
to change all that. But if we want to change all that in a kind of self-condemning or hateful way, it doesn't work. Because then all of that effort will be rather strained and harsh and, and difficult for us. We might cling or hold on to pleasant experiences that come up because they really mean maybe we're not as bad as we thought. And when they start to pass, we get very frightened and upset because maybe we are as bad as we thought. And so what we need to do is really challenge that basic motivation because we can practice in a, a stronger and more sustained way from a motivation of compassion. And that is not to view our um, difficulties as bad and wrong and evil and so on, but to see them as states of suffering, to actually see them in that way, and thus to feel the response of compassion that comes uh, more readily, more naturally, so that our practice doesn't become about acquiring or getting or having so that we can prove to ourselves and ultimately to others that we're really okay. Because if that's why we're practicing, really deep down, we're going to feel we don't deserve um, those happy states. So practice isn't about developing a new self-image. It's really about the deepest, broadest state of compassion for ourselves and for all beings. And that mind is known as the great brave mind because it's limitless. It's limitless in terms of the degree and the depth of compassion we have for ourselves. And because of the limitless, limitless nature of compassion we can have for others. It's like that state, the trembling of the heart or the quivering of the heart, is like a mirror that we can look into all along our practice. And we say, what is motivating me? Now, how am I relating to this particular torment of the mind that's arising right now, to lust or anger or fear or whatever? Am I looking at that state and myself bearing that state with some compassion? Or am I regarding myself with some amount of rejection or denial or anger about the anger? or fear and a crazed attempt to make this state, whatever it is, go away somehow? Are we relating to our experiences and what range of our experiences with compassion? And are we relating to others? Are we practicing with a sense that our practice is not for ourselves alone, but it is for all beings everywhere? That is the, the fire of motivation that compassion can provide. And it is a natural result of seeing the interconnection, the interconnectedness of beings, of all of us. It's not just the weather that is the combination of conditions coming together in a certain way at a certain time. It is all of us in this great web of being that reflect one another and affect one another. So here's the Buddha who became enlightened one night sitting under a tree with the 
uh, perfection of these three aspects of liberation, renunciation, realization, and compassion. It said that after his enlightenment, the Buddha stayed for 49 days just around that tree. He did walking meditation for seven days. He gazed at the tree in gratitude for seven days for having sheltered him. He did various um, reflections for a total of 49 days and then he moved on. It said that one of the first people that encountered him as he was walking, as after he'd left the tree, was someone who was very uh, moved, taken by his appearance, by his radiance. And this man said to the Buddha, who are you? And the Buddha said, I'm awake. I'm an awakened one. And the man said something like, maybe, and he walked away. And the Buddha went on to um, find his first five disciples and to teach. For those who were willing to open, who had the tendency or the propensity to listen, um, then he was an incomparable teacher. There's something he said that I quoted earlier about beings willing to learn. For those beings willing to learn, he was an extraordinary teacher. It said that he could course read the mind and the heart of beings and know exactly what practice they needed um, for their liberation and that's probably one reason all those stories end so happily you know and then you know 30,000 beings got enlightened it's often said and we often say it that the Buddha did not teach Buddhism the Buddha taught the Dharma because the concept that we call Buddhism is really a relatively recent Western idea. The body of teachings and practice and the living example of the Buddha was classically known as Buddha Dhamma or the way of the Buddha. We say Buddhism, you know, uh, kind of conventionally or readily nowadays, but it's not really accurate. Because the most important thing always in his teaching was to have a sense of the way and to recognize that it wasn't just for him long ago. That it's for us right now. That it's very real. It's very relevant. And it was like maybe three or four hundred years after the time of the Buddha in which they first uh, made Buddha statues. Before then he was depicted by the tree or by footsteps showing a way, a path. I think of it sometimes as a, a kind of transparency. When we look clearly at the Buddha, we look carefully at the Buddha, we see the Dhamma, we see the truth. Because they're inseparable. And we see the Dhamma, we see ourselves. Because that is the truth of our experience. So one thing just opens up 
into another. And it's cyclical, it's circular. It's not something that can be divided or cut off. To have a sense of the Buddha apart from us really is not the point. To have the sense of the Buddha as our own potential brought to life is the point. Nowadays, it's sort of a a funny time, you know, because um, so many more people are interested in the practices and the teachings of the Buddha. And, And yet, really, it's not about becoming a Buddhist or calling yourself a Buddhist, necessarily, but much more about being able to trust that tremendous potential within ourselves and to be able to use the methods for the support and the, the awakening of that potential within ourselves. Some time ago during the uh, Gulf War, I was traveling to Asia with some friends and went to Nepal uh, to practice and also bought a number of Buddha images and then I went on to Bangkok on my way home. and because it was just during the war, there was a lot of increased security at the airports. And um, for no reason I could discern at all, in Bangkok, we were pulled aside by the security officer and he started asking us a whole bunch of questions. And first they were the usual questions, like, did you pack your bag yourself? And has it been out of your sight and all that? And then he asked us things like, what did you do last night? I said, I don't know, sat around, you know. Um, and then he looked at me and he said are you Jewish? and I said yes and he said okay you can go so we went on through and we went through immigration and like I don't know it was like 10 or 15 minutes later we were standing in the um, place where you put your hand luggage on the conveyor where it's x-rayed and uh, I was carrying all those Buddha statues in my hand luggage that I bought in Nepal and and so there they were, lit up on the x-ray screen. And the woman behind the screen said to me, are you a Buddhist? And I said, yes. And I walked on through. And I sat down on the plane and I thought, that was really weird. <laughs> you know, that was probably the most condensed period of my life where I was twice asked my religious affiliation and I said yes to both, you know, both questions. Because it's really not the point. Um, you know, to call oneself something, especially if it is a label that in some way makes for more separation and more of a sense of isolation. The point is about discovering that that special delight and that um, great joy in the simplicity of renunciation and having a realization of the truth for ourselves and to discover, sometimes much to our amazement, that capacity within us for compassion, for genuine compassion, both for ourselves and ultimately in a limitless way. That really is the point. The point is to develop and sustain our own confidence in ourselves, as we are, in effect, all of us sitting under our own Bodhi tree, facing our own challenges, to understand that it's not by accident that we are here, that many conditions have come together up to this point. I often say to people, because I actually believe it, 
not just to be nice, that I think we've actually all done the hardest part already. Because the hardest part is that willingness to question and say, wait a minute, maybe there is a quality of happiness and peace that is not so bound up with things staying the same, with the body staying healthy and perfect and young, with the mind never uncovering any sorrow. Maybe there is a quality of happiness that's different. And I want to find out. That's the hardest part. The rest is a question of patience and persistence and continual refinement of our motivation. And it's a tremendous opportunity, really, that uh, each of us has this possibility to hear, um, say, the teachings of the Buddha or learn of the example of his life and know that it means something for us, that this is in fact our own potential. When I was uh, living in India many years ago, there was uh, one teacher there who had a custom of uh, gathering his uh, older, more experienced students around him in in these special um, sittings. And the these special sittings were held at a time when this teacher's teacher in another country was sitting as well. So the idea was that at that particular time, because this teacher in another country was also sitting, there was a a very special um, transmission of energy and blessings that was happening just then. And the idea was that it was almost like radio waves being broadcast. And in fact, they called it broadcasting. So um, they were actually extremely powerful experiences often. Um, But if you were a little bit on the outside, like you weren't invited, you know, to one of these sittings, there was often a mingling of some jealousy and uncertainty and that kind of feeling like, oh, I want to be one of those people, you know, who gets to sit at the special sitting and gets the special energy and blessing that's being broadcasted toward them. So um, one day some of us went to another one of our teachers, a different teacher, with a little bit of uh, complaining and a little bit of yearning and many other qualities. And we said to him, well, what do you think about the, this custom of this other teacher you know, to, to do these special sittings? And our teacher looked at us and said, Buddha's always broadcasting. We just have to be able to tune in. So let's sit together for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.